We just ask God that in the time that we have together this morning that you'd speak to us. I pray, Father, that um, you would truly draw near to us as our Father and that you would do what only you can do, that you would search our hearts. Um, Father, I thank you that the truth is is that you know us better than we even know ourselves uh, because our hearts at times can be desperately wicked above all else and uh, we can't understand them, but you can and you are greater than our hearts. And we pray this morning, Lord, that, uh, that you would do miracles in each one of our hearts and cause us to love you more, change us, change our desires, give us new affections, um, new love for you, uh, and that you'd help us to leave here changed. In Christ's name, amen. Morning, you can have a seat. So again, this morning, if you got your Bibles, grab them, open them to wherever you like. Uh, because we'll be all over the place this morning. Um, for those of you that were here last week, you know we're doing a series here through the summer uh, through our uh, doctrinal statement. Um, doctrine is important. Theology is important for the most part here at Mercy Hill. From the beginning, we, have, uh, we just preach verse by verse through the Bible here in the last couple of years. We've been on it doing a church like Bible reading plan together, and then I just preach out of that on Sunday mornings. Um, we preached verse by verse through the book of Luke for two years, the longest sermon series ever. <laughs> uh, I don't know why, it just makes me laugh that we did that for two years, but it was good. Luke is good. We like all of the Bible, amen? Bible's good, can't go wrong. Um, but right now, we are uh, just kind of taking some doctrinal topics. Last week, we started with the Trinity, and now for the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at each uh, individual person of the Trinity but of course, if you were here last week, you know that they're one being, but separate in their person. Uh, and this morning, we're going to look at the Father. We're going to look at the Father. So if you guys got one of these deals as you walked in, um, on the front at the top is our doctrinal statement, some verses on the back. Uh, I'm going to read through the bold lettering at the top, which is our kind of formal doctrinal statement. Um, the rest is kind of supplemental with the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechisms and the Nicene Creed and different things like that. And we're just going to kind of jump right in. Um, I will be uh, quoting a lot of scripture as we go through this. On Friday, with the interns, I was still uh, quite a bit behind in my sermon prep, just with my schedule this week. And so when that happens, I usually use my time with them to kind of go over what I want to say, and I'm a very uh, verbal processor, so I kind of figure it out as I'm talking it out, and I kind of whiteboarded kind of the broad strokes of what I wanted to do, and at the end, Matt Beachy just goes, there's no way you're going to be able to cover all that on, on Sunday morning, and I was like, well, we're going to try, so, so here, here we go. Let me just start reading at the top there. We believe that God the Father the first person of the Trinity is the creator of all things. Now, that phrase, the first thing, that phrase I want to unpack is that, that little phrase, the first person of the Trinity, okay? When we speak of God as the first person of the Trinity, one of the things we emphasized last week is that all the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are co-equal and they are co-eternal, okay? They are all equally God. But when we speak in the first person of the Trinity, even though they are co-equal and they are co-eternal, they are functionally submissive to one another, okay? A.H. Um, Strong as a, explains this well. He says, The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while equal in essence and dignity, 
stand to each other in an order of personality, office, and operation. The subordination of the person of the Son to the person of the Father, or in other words, an order of personality, office, or operation, which permits the Father to be officially first, the Son second, and the Spirit third, is perfectly consistent with equality. Priority is not necessarily superiority. We frankly recognize an eternal subordination of Christ to the Father, but we maintain at the same time that this subordination is a subordination of order, office, and operation, not a subordination of essence. So here's, here's all that he's saying, is that um, in terms of function, even though the Son and the Spirit are co-equal with the Father, they choose to be submissive to the Father. And this is how it's been within the Trinity for all of eternity past. And one of the big things that I want you to get this morning, and we'll, we'll come back to this as, as we read through this because it, it comes up at different times, is that I want you to understand that God, the God that we worship, um, he's not like a father. He is the perfect father. Before anything was created, and I know you gotta, it's hard for our minds to get around, but before there was anything, he was already a father then to the son, the eternal son, Jesus Christ. And practically speaking, like, well, okay, that's cool, but who cares? Well, I'd just like to say this. He's really good at being a good father. He's been doing it for a long time. And it's not that he was ever getting any better. He's always been perfect. But he's been doing it for a long time, even before the creation of the world. And he knows how to be a good father to you. He does. He knows how to be a good father to you. Um, again, he's not just like our earthly fathers. He is the perfect father. There's going to be a day at the end of all things. This is from 1 Corinthians 15, 24 uh, through 28. When God right now has, in his power and glory, has ordained that He's putting all things under the authority of his son, Christ. But there will then be a day where Christ turns and hands everything over to the Father so that God will be all in all. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Paul says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign, being Jesus, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There is coming a day when death, our greatest enemy, is going to be defeated. Amen? Death will be no more. And over the last couple of months, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, we know that death, like, it's not just ceasing to exist, but it's separation. Sin is death. Death is separation. Um, but there's going to be a day when death is destroyed. And Paul goes on here, for God has put all things in subjection under his, Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, that, when it speaks about all things being subject to Christ, he's saying that excludes the Father. Then he says, when all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
Now you don't need, so, so here's the deal, is we've been talking a lot over the last month or two also here at Mercy Hill about false prophets and false prophecies and something. This, you, you don't need to be a prophet to understand this verse. I can tell you what's going to happen. One day, every single knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen. This is where we are headed, folks. That God is going to be all in all. Everything is going to be unified. All the, all the wars, all the chaos, all the sin, all the wickedness, all the selfishness, it is all going to be submitted to the feet of Christ. And Christ, when he has everything, unlike man, when he has everything and tries to make it all about him, Christ, even though he deserves all the honor and glory, he will also turn and give all things to the Father. Because he and the Father are one. Um... He's the first person of the Trinity, the creator of all things. Going back to the doctrinal statement, he is infinite. He is an infinite and personal spirit. Let me just say this, two, two big things there. He is an infinite and personal spirit. Infinite, he, he's eternal, perfect, but he's also a personal spirit. Um, the reason these two things are together is because we have a hard time, natural man has a hard time putting these two things together. When we think of something big or glorious or powerful or majestic, like God's uh, infinity, his infiniteness, I don't know if that's a word, but go with it. Um, when we think about God being infinite, we have a hard time thinking that he's also personal, but he is. He absolutely, he absolutely is. Psalm 68, 5. It says, God is a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. It's infinite. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Then it says this, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So look at this imagery that Isaiah is putting together. That his mighty arm rules for him. He has measured out the waters of the ocean just simply in the hollow of his hand. And yet these same hands and these same arms will gently carry little lambs. That's us. He is infinite, but he is, he is personal. And unlike men, again, when they have power and authority, they tend to isolate themselves and remain untouchable and impersonal. But that's not our God. He is infinite and personal. And it goes on here, and I'm going to read past this, and then I'm going to come back to it. But it says, He is perfect in power, authority, knowledge, wisdom, justice, love, and glory. We're going to come back and look at those things. He is sovereign in creation, providence, and redemption. When we say God is sovereign, I want you to know that when I use that term, that God is sovereign, it, it, there, there's no such thing as being partly sovereign. Either you're sovereign or you're not. And when we say, well, God, what is he sovereign over? Everything. Everything. From the sparrow that falls to the number of grains of 
sand on the seashore, to the raising up of nations, the tearing down of nations, the exaltation of kings, the tearing down of kings and rulers. He is sovereign over everything, completely. His fatherhood involves both his designation within the Trinity, which I've already spoke about, that he has eternally been the father, and his relationship with humanity. In one sense, as creator, he is father to all human beings, but let me be careful here, okay, but this is true. Um, uh, there's a sense in which the Bible speaks at times about how God is the father of us all because he's created us all. However, this is in no way, shape, or form universalism. Um, yet in a far greater and salvific sense, salvific just meaning salvation, in a far greater and salvific sense, he is father only to those who believe in his son. I believe this is on the back of your paper. Yes, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Only those who have trusted in Christ are the true sons and daughters of God. Salvation is found in no other name except Jesus Christ alone. It's the only name by which we can be saved. Um, going on here, he has decreed for his own glory all things that come to pass. Well, what do you mean by all? I mean all. I mean everything. He has decreed for his own glory all things that come to pass. He continually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and events. In his sovereignty, he is neither the author nor approver of sin, nor does he diminish the accountability of moral, intelligent creatures for their own choices and actions. And the end of all things is that God the Father will be all in all, as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I want to go back and I want to spend some time here on that list of words uh, and, and what is yeah, the second sentence there, where he is perfect in power, authority, knowledge, wisdom, justice, love, and glory. Seven, seven things. First of all, our Father has all power. He has all power. He has the ability to do whatever he wants. When I was growing up, I really wanted to be able to dunk a basketball like Michael Jordan. But I did not have the ability to do that. Okay? God does not lack any ability any power, any resource to do whatever he wants, okay? Secondly, he has all authority, and I wanna show you how these things kinda of play off of each other and give a, a robust picture of who he is. He also has all authority. Um, where power is the ability to do whatever we want, authority is the right to do whatever we want, okay? So if somebody has power, okay, let's say like, I don't know, think of a, I mean, just on the, even in our world, just like on the streets, I guess, <laughs> or um, maybe warring tribes in other countries, but the same thing happens here, I suppose, um, is that you might have power, you might have, there might be a group with guns, but they don't have really the authority to use the power of those guns, that armory or whatever. Um, and so they would be, uh, kind of like rebels 
because they would have power but not the authority. You can also have people that have authority, but maybe they don't have the power. Those would be governments that are impotent, and they're probably soon going to be overthrown by whoever does have the power. But then what we want is we want people with both the power and the authority um, to be able to carry out good. However, in our broken, sinful world, many times we do have governments or people that have the power, they have the ability to do what they want, and then they also have the authority, the right to do what they want, but they don't exercise that power and authority out of love or kindness for others, but instead out of selfishness. Our Father has all power. He's not impotent in any way, and he has all authority. He has the right to do what he wants. Um, let, me, let, let me just say this, because I think we, we forget about this sometimes. This is his world, right? He created everything, right? You with me? This is his world, so guess what? It's his rules. It's not complicated. Man doesn't like that. You're not the boss of me. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it is his world, and so it's his rules. He has all power and all authority. He also has all knowledge, okay? He has all knowledge. He knows everything that is or could be, including knowledge of himself. Now, let me give an example here of what I mean. There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 11 through 14, where David for many years was on the run from Saul, if you've ever studied David's life, before he actually sits on the throne, Saul is trying to kill him again and again. And David is down in this little town um, of Keilah, and it says this, and, and, and Saul is coming after him, and David wants to know if the men of Keilah are going to surrender him, like hand him over. Here's what it says. David prays to the Lord, and he says, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, Please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, rose, arose and departed from Kilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Now here's what I mean when God has all knowledge of everything that is or everything that could be. Here we see an example of his knowledge of what could be. David says, is Saul going to come down? He's going to come down. Are the men of Kilah going to surrender me over? They will, they, were, they will surrender you over. But did that actually happen? No, because God told David this and he ran away and then it never, it never happened. God has knowledge of all that is, but all, also of everything that ever could be. Are you tracking with me? Yeah? He's perfect in knowledge. He knows everything about us personally. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts, not as I'm thinking them, you discern my thoughts from afar. What that means is God knows what you're going to think before you think it. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows your thoughts before you're going to think them. He knows your words before you're going to say them. Before it is on your tongue, he knows them all together. David goes on, he says, you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful 
It is high. I cannot attain it. Later on in verse 16 of Psalm 139, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And listen to this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now that's a little bit, of a, it's from the ESV, it's kind of a choppy way. Here's how the NIV says it. The NIV says it much more plain, and it's, it's a fair translation. It says, every day ordained for me was written in your book before one of them came to be. He is sovereign over everything. And he not only has perfect knowledge of everything that is or everything that could ever be, but he knows it perfectly. So for example, if you were going to like pop quiz God, God, you say you know how many grains of sand are on the seashore. How many is it? He wouldn't have to be like uh, Gabriel. Uh, that's, that answer is in the back filing cabinet in uh, you know, room number 12. Like, he knows everything right now. He doesn't ever have to search for it. He knows everything perfectly all the time. Okay? Um, his perfect knowledge also includes knowledge of himself. Which just gets really deep because he is the most powerful being in all the universe. He, he does not lack in any power or any authority. So he can do whatever he wants. It's his world. It's his rules. And he is not constrained by any lack of power. So when we say <laughs> that God is going to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he has the ability to do that. It's real. It's really good news. Not only does he have all power, authority, knowledge, he also has all wisdom. Okay, Where knowledge is just knowing all that could be or is, including himself, wisdom is the ability to know how to apply that knowledge in the absolute best possible way. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge, and God is not only all-knowing, he is all-wise. And so in all of his power, all of his authority, all of his knowledge, he knows how to do things the best. It, you know, it would be like for us sometimes, like sometimes, like right now, we're looking for a car, um, and uh, I, I am not good at finding deals. I feel like I tend to get ripped off consistently. So I have solicited Conrad to, because uh, Conrad is your deal man. I, I, I shouldn't be saying this. Conrad, everybody's going to want your number. If you need a deal, Conrad will find it for you. I'm telling you. He's the man. In fact, he sent, me, he sent me a car yesterday morning at like 6 in the morning on a Saturday. God bless him. And uh, we, we tried to track it down, and it might still happen, but maybe not. Anyway, but I, like, because I lack wisdom, I don't, I don't always know the best way to do things or how to get the best deal. But God knows how to do things the best possible way, folks. He really does. Um, let me just go right to the heart of it. Acts chapter 2, speaking of Christ's crucifixion, which on one level was 100% a sinful act of man, crucifying God, the innocent Son of God. Yet on the other hand, was a perfect act of God's wisdom. 
Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, isn't God gracious for sending his son and showing that he's his son by all the miracles that he did? And he says, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Going back to the doctrinal statement, that last sentence, in his sovereignty, he is neither author nor approver of sin, nor does he diminish the accountability of morally intelligent creatures for their own choices and actions. Somehow, this is the great mystery. People always want to debate it. And listen, we can debate it. We can discuss it. I have no problem doing that. But I will not just debate it, and I will not just discuss it. I will also declare it with everything that I have. That just because there's some mystery there does not mean that it is not true that God is not completely sovereign over everything. It's what makes him God. Acts chapter 4, they say something similar. After being threatened by the religious rulers, they get together and they pray and they say it. And when they had heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord! who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Yes, on one level, on the human level, the cross came about because of the evil plotting of sinful man. But ultimately, God was wielding that evil for his glory to destroy evil. And in it all, God is glorified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul refers to the cross of Christ um, as the power of God and as the wisdom of God. He is all wise. Our Father is also perfectly just. He is perfect in his justice. Here's what we mean. He has never wronged anyone. Never has he wronged anyone. And one day, every act of wrong that has not been brought under the blood of Christ will be justly punished. No one is going to get away with evil, ultimately. Psalm 97, verse 1 and 6, says the Lord, Yahweh, reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Then it says this, listen. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. In other words, his throne from which a king sits, from which a king rules, from which he makes judgments, hopefully just judgments, the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples will see his glory. But listen to Hebrews chapter 4. Again, speaking of the throne of God, and listen how it's described. Verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of not righteousness and justice, 
but the throne of what? Do you know this verse? Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And both are true. In Psalm 97, it's a throne of righteousness and justice. But now, since Christ has come, and the verse is right before that verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, verses 14 and 15, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then, or therefore, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We would have a hard time being compelled to draw near to the throne of righteousness and justice, right? Because we're not righteous and we're not just. But in Christ, justice has been served. Do you see the gospel here? That Jesus came and he bore the righteous wrath of God that we deserved but as a substitute in our place. And now this throne that is righteous and just, we get to come before this throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That we don't need to be afraid because of what Jesus did. And why did Jesus come? Because the Father sent him. Understand, folks, that as we talk about the Father and who he is, so many people live with a false dichotomy in their mind about this good Jesus who was loving and caring and willing to die for us and the mean Father up in heaven. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. There's no incongruence between the Father and the Son. God so loved the world that he sent the Son. He has always been a Father from all of eternity past within the Trinity and as he creates the world. And he hates sin but they devised a way for sinners to come and to find grace and to still uphold his justice. He is perfectly just. He has never wronged anyone, and no one's going to get away with anything in the end. Um, our Father is also perfect in his love. In other words, he, he uses all that he has for the good of his people. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life for his friends. And again, that's what Jesus came and did at the command of the Father. And Jesus was willing to do it. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, God has already brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He has delivered them already. He has destroyed the Egyptians, those who used to once hold them in slavery. He has destroyed them in the Red Sea. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, him being Moses, and he proclaimed the name of Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's perfectly just, but he's perfectly loving, and his heart is one of compassion. And you can't, listen, you, you, we got to think, we, we got to stop playing this game where God is either all loving or all wrathful. Like, like those two things actually kind of help define each other. 
There, there's no one that I love more than Hannah and my boys. And so if you mess with Hannah or the boys because there's nobody I love more, you are going to see a vitriol hatred out of me more than you would see at any other place because I love them, right? God hates sin. He hates sin. Yet in his love, he made a way for us to be saved from it because he wanted us to deliver. He wanted to deliver us from it because in his great love, he didn't want us to be stuck in sin, which is death, and to be separated from him forever and also separated from the goodness that's now available through a relationship with him in this life. God is perfect in his love. And then lastly, our Father is perfect in glory. And what we mean here is he alone deserves glory. No one else does. No one else deserves glory. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48.11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. When, again, again, he brings the Israelites out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 20. Starting off with the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It only makes sense for God to speak this way. Or to say it another way, God is the only one who can speak this way. For us to speak of not wanting to share our glory with another is narcissistic and selfish. But not when you're God. When you're God and it's your world and it's your rules and it's your glory and, there, and it's not like it's pretend. It's not like there's something else that is more glorious and he's just kind of selfish and he doesn't want us to see that thing and so he just wants us to be focused on him so we don't you know, get drawn away to this other thing over here. The truth is there is no one more glorious than him. And so the greatest gift that he can give us is the gift of himself. You understand? So when he says glorify me, there's nothing else worth glorifying. There's nothing else worth beholding and seeing and savoring and being in awe of. And so when he tells us to worship him, when he tells us to, to look at him, that is a command of love on his part. What else, would, what else do you want him to tell you to look at? There's nothing better. You follow me? He is the most supreme being in all of the universe. And not only is he glorious, but once again, as with all these things, he is our father. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, I, I, I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is who we just sang to a little bit ago. Did you sing like you were singing to him? This is who we sang to, the Father of glory. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how this applies to our lives in some very real ways, especially in regards to his sovereignty and his love, but all these things, his power, authority, knowledge, wisdom, his justice, his love, and his glory. And there are four things that all kind of go together um, they're separate, but, but, they're, but they're one. It's hard to talk about one of them without talking about the rest. And they're this. Pain, perseverance, prayer, and purpose. Pain, perseverance, prayer, 
and purpose. One of the things, um, that you guys greatly encourage me in, and you don't know that you do it, is I don't know nearly all the pain that is represented in this room this morning. Um, But I probably know a little bit more than some whole scale. Because people come and talk with me about what's going on in their life. and here, here's the thing, guys, I just, sometimes we forget this, I'm, I'm always reminded of it, but uh, everybody's hurting. Everybody has areas in their life that are painful and that, we're, that are hurting. And, and the pain is real, the pain, sometimes it's because of our own sin, where we shoot ourselves in the foot, we cause ourselves pain, but many times it's, it's sin that was done to us by others. Because sin abounds. There is no lack of it. (laughs) Uh, Outside the church and also in the church at times. And uh, and that pain, um, the reason you guys encourage me is because you have no idea how I just at times I get choked up over there when I just glance over (laughs) and see you guys singing anyway, despite the pain. Because this is what we're called to do is that in the midst of our pain, with our sovereign heavenly Father over all things, is we have to persevere. But persevere in what? Persevere in worship. We persevere in declaring that no matter what pain comes into our life, that God is still good and that he's faithful. And many times when the pain comes, we don't always see a reason why. At first, many times we don't see reason at all, and we won't until heaven, until glory. And so we persevere through prayer, through asking God again and again to help us to stand firm in worshiping Him despite our pain, but to persevere in that. But one of the good things about what we just talked about, about God being completely sovereign and perfect in power, authority, knowledge, wisdom, justice, love, and glory, is that I believe only this sovereign God is able to authoritatively promise you, and he does in his word, that your pain has a purpose. It absolutely has a purpose. It's very in vogue, it always has been, it gets repackaged uh, in more recent years in our time, it's been referred to as open theism. The same type of teaching has always been around, although it's been called different things. Um, There are are other teachings as well, people, they they say they're not open theists, but, but really it is just open theism. And what open theism is, is that God doesn't perfectly know the future. Um, Many times they'll describe it, I know one guy likes to describe it as playing chess, that God's just a really good chess player, and basically, he doesn't know what's going to happen, but if you try to beat it, but he's never lost a game. And so he's, you know, we're moving pieces, and then he's just reacting to us, and then he's moving his pieces around, and he's just never lost a game. That, that's, not, that's not true. That's not true. And here's what that, and here's why that God 
that doesn't know the future and can't really control the future and is just reacting to us? Here's why that's not good news. is because when pain comes into our life, all he could really do then in his reaction to us is basically slip us some Advil or some painkillers. Some divine painkillers. They might be kind of good, but, you know, but like, well, well, here you go. Well, I didn't know this was going to, and I'm just reacting as best I can, and here you go. But I'm telling you that is not the way it works. It's not. And here's what's hard about it. What's hard about it is the pain because of sin is very real. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to skirt around hard issues here this morning. I'm talking about abuse. I'm talking about molestation. I'm talking about evil that has been done to people. Done to you, possibly, in different ways. And your father was taking, when that act of evil happened to you, although he allowed it, he was not surprised by it, and he did not delight in it. But I'm telling you, he has a purpose in it. And the purpose is for his glory. And it is not lost on me that what I'm saying right now is a hard pill to swallow. But I'm telling you, it is what the Bible teaches. And I will go to my grave proclaiming it. He has never, for one millisecond in the history of ruling the world, not been in total control. And I understand that there's some things that can be hard to reconcile because of the pain, the real pain and evil that comes into our lives. But I'm telling you that only a sovereign God can weep with you in that, watch over you in that, preserve you through it, even though it hurt, and say to you, it is not wasted. It is not. These light and momentary afflictions are somehow working for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And I can't explain that. I can't, I don't know how that's going to come about. But I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says. I'm sorry, guys. I just, because the pain, the pain in this life, it's real. But our God is real too. Our God is real too. I want you to look at the Heidelberg Catechism. They just, they succinctly articulate this probably better than what I just tried to. But throughout history, this is how people have persevered. Throughout history, this is how people have, have persevered in worship. In the midst of difficult things, in the midst of literally giving up their lives. Men like John Bunyan, who, who, who had, I forget how many kids, it was a lot, and was imprisoned for like 13 years. Some of his kids had special needs, and his wife had to raise them on their own. But he went to jail because he would not recant from preaching the gospel. 
Question 26 from the Heidelberg Catechism. What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth? Answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth, and with all that is in them, and all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt, but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body and further, that, listen, that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. What a beautiful little phrase. That whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out for my advantage for he is able to do it. Being almighty God and willing, being a faithful father. What dost thou believe? Or what dost thou mean by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and everywhere present God, power of God whereby, <coughs> excuse me, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28, what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. The last breath that you took was in his hand. It belongs to him. In regards to prayer, question 120, why has Christ commanded us to address God thus as our Father? Answer, that immediately, in the very beginning of our prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer. Namely, that God has become our Father in Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. Very quickly, two people in the Bible that you think of when you think of pain and suffering. Joseph and Job. Joseph was one of Jacob's sons, um, the only son during his upbringing, living in Jacob's house by his, uh, by his mother Rachel, who was one of Jacob's two wives. You remember most of Jacob's sons came from Leah, Rachel's sister, um, and Joseph was especially loved by his fathers, but especially hated by his brothers. I'm sorry, especially loved by his father, not fathers. Especially loved by his father, but especially hated by his brothers. And they wanted to kill him because they were jealous of him. And instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. Um, and he found favor there, but then he got falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, who was a shady lady. And uh, then he spent a couple years in an Egyptian prison. Not a great place to be. But you guys know the story. And in the end, in a day, he went from the prison to being the prince of Egypt. Second in command, only to Pharaoh himself.
And Joseph's brothers, you guys know the story, they come down because there's a famine in the whole land. And finally, in Genesis chapter 45, um, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers who have thought that he had long been dead a long time ago, that they would never see him again. In Genesis chapter 45, starting in verse 4, it says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for, you, for, you have met, for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And later on, a fairly well-known verse in Genesis chapter 50, as the book of Genesis comes to an end, he says again to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. And that word meant, it, what does meant mean? It, it means they meant it. <laughs> they intended it. We are going to do evil to our brother. You meant evil against me, but God meant it. The same exact circumstance. God meant, he intended it for good. Whatever the evil or the pain has been in your life, that it, as Joseph says it here, I'm telling you the same is true for you. Very quickly, the book of Job. Maybe flip there, since I haven't told you to flip anywhere yet this morning. Can I do an overview of the book of Job in like three minutes? Let's, let's try. Job is a righteous man. Job chapter 1 verse 8. Satan comes before God. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Not sinless perfection, but a good dude. Love the Lord. And this is the testimony of God about Job. He was, he was, he was, he was a good guy. Satan accuses him, accuses Job before the throne of God. This is what he does. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. Um, and he says it's only because you protect him and you guys know the story God says to Satan okay you can take all that he has but spare his life you may not touch him and so in a day Job loses everything seven, seven sons and three daughters and all that he has and the end of chapter 1 verse 20 it says then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped and he worshipped he worshipped he persevered in worshipping because he believed in a sovereign God Here's why I say that, verse 21. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and listen, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you're like, well, Eric, you know, yeah, but Job doesn't know about Satan. But the writer of Job is, makes this clear, verse 22, he says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In other words, Job was right in what he said, that ultimately it was the Lord. 
Satan comes before the throne again, accuses Job again, and he says, it's only because you've not let me touch his life. God says, okay, you can do whatever you want to him, but you cannot take his life. And so Satan comes again, and now Job is inflicted with painful boils from, the, from his heel to the crown of his head. Just He's sitting in a pile of ash, scraping, oozing, pus-filled boils all over his body. Verse 9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, and I, I used to be kind of harsh with Job's wife, but honestly, if you really put yourself in their place, I mean, she lost all her babies. She lost everybody. And he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And notice what he says. He's like, this isn't you. You're not a foolish woman, sweetie. But you're speaking like one right now. And we all need to be reminded of that. We're all Job's wife at times. Amen? We forget. And we need to be reminded. No, no, no. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And evil from God? And then it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, even though he said this is ultimately from God, not Satan, he wasn't wrong. He did not sin with his lips. And these two stories of great suffering, I hold up very briefly. Again, I, give me some grace here. I understand, you know, we're skimming the surface on this. We could spend months on everything we talked about this morning and his wisdom, his power, and all that. We could spend months on the life of Joseph, months on the life of Job. There are two examples of how God is able, because he has all power, and because he has all authority, to work everything together for good in your life. And my appeal to you here as we close and as we take communion is just simply this. is as we come to the Lord's table today, I understand that probably nothing I said gave a clear answer or purpose as to the pain that you might be experiencing in this present season. But as we come today and look at what he's done for us through Christ and how through that terrible act of sin on one level, that terrible act of evil on the human level, was ultimately under the hand of God for the greatest good that you could ever possibly imagine. I just want you to come this morning, and I just want you to say to your Father, to your Father, to your Heavenly Father who loves you, I just want you to say, Father, I trust you. I trust you. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Pray that your Holy Spirit would help us. Pray that your Holy Spirit would strengthen our hearts. I'm sure that there's both pain but also praise and good represented here this morning. But Father, in it all, in it all, in it all, I pray that we would just worship you. I pray that you would be exalted. 
Thank you that you're not just like a good father, but that you are a good father. And not just a good one, the best. In faith, we just say that we trust you. Amen. If you want to stand with me, please, worship team, you can come on up. If you're helping serve communion, if you want to come down front,